Misfit Toys. Welcome to episode 649 with my guest, Amelia Zachary. Uh, my name is Paul Kilmartin. How are you? I like to talk to you like uh, we're in a phone booth, like it's 20 years ago. Are there even phone booths anymore? Where is Superman going to change? In the AT&T store? I don't know. I'll get to the bottom of this. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the shit rattling around in our skulls. Uh, I'm not a therapist. This is not meant to be a substitute for mental, uh, professional mental health counseling. Uh, it's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck, where they're holding each other's hands, cracking fucked up jokes. That's why I started the podcast. Checked something off my uh, bucket list last night. My girlfriend took me to see one of my favorite bands, Cake. I don't know if you're familiar with them or not, but they're awesome. They're they're just so different. I just love, uh, and, and the lead singer has such a good sense of humor. His banter between the songs, I think, was as entertaining as the songs themselves. But um, we we were, <laughs> how do I how do I say this? Uh, our seats were next to two uh, guys probably about my age, um, very exuberant, seemed to have had uh, quite a lot to drink, possibly some drugs, uh, and the guy sitting directly next to us, one of the two guys, was one of those people that is close enough to you to whisper but apparently when he was growing up, his mom said, talk to someone as if they're a thousand yards away, just in case they don't hear. And then his dad chimed in, make it 2,000 just to be safe. I'm pretty sure half the people in the arena heard his thoughts on the concert going experience. And I hope I'm not one of these people, but he's like one of those people of a certain age that everything was better in the past. And the concert, he said, you know, the kids today, they don't have any respect for concert-going etiquette. Five seconds before the show starts, they make an announcement, no photography or filming. Five seconds later, show starts, takes his camera out with flash, films throughout almost the entire concert. On top of that, my girlfriend Christina gets up to use the bathroom, comes back, he's finished her beer. I didn't understand at first why his buddy with him, uh, he they, they mentioned, oh yeah, he's related to, uh, to one of the guys in the band, uh, but uh, yeah, they didn't come through with tickets for us. I know. I now understand why. And the great thing is, I didn't let it fuck up our experience, nor did Christina. We were just like, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful part of the ebb and flow of life. Life is filled with God's flawed children. I'm one of them. And yeah, this guy is going to go to hell and share a bunk bed with Hitler. And even Hitler is going to be like, nobody, I, I can't be seen it. Ciao with you because you're... You film when you're not supposed to. And you may say, Paul, how is that worse than what Hitler did? I don't know. I can't put it into words. It's just a feeling that I have. Let's read a survey. 
This is uh, from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Sulky Colt. I like that name. Uh, Hi, Paul. Hello. You strike me as someone who easily has friends. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're wrong. Now, that's not entirely true. I've never had a lot of friends. Have you ever felt excruciatingly, excruciatingly lonely for a significant period? It's been about seven years since I didn't feel lonely. I've made stupid choices because of it. Can you relate? Oh, my God. Yes. It is not the case today because, yeah, Paul, get on your soapbox, support groups. Support groups, therapy, meds, all, all the other good shit. But there was a period where, and I think a lot of you know this feeling, you feel lonely in a crowded room. And it took me, I think, a lot of years in a support group to realize it's not about physical proximity to people. It's about connection. You know, it's like we have an inner and outer person. And for so many of us, the struggle in life is connecting the outer person to the inner person, uh, which I guess would be called authenticity. But, oh boy, that feeling of being, even with friends, and feeling disconnected, having an almost indescribable sense of sadness or longing or an ache, uh, an inability to describe a feeling of a part of us missing that either was lost or had never been there. And you can't verbalize it or you're afraid to verbalize it. Um, that's why I started this podcast. So yeah, I totally have gone through periods like that. And I think uh, I think people that tune into this podcast probably have as well. But thank you for that question. Great question. Same survey. This is from a guy who uh, calls himself Ted R., uh, he says, I've been listening to the podcast for years, and it helped uh, me immensely. I've read every book you've ever suggested. I've had a good therapist who helped me with anxiety, panic attacks, and depression. What I want to ask is, what is the actual treatment for sexual trauma? When I talked about my sexual childhood sexual abuse from my mother, my therapist literally... <laughs> my therapist listened emphatically and thanked me for sharing. But there was no treatment plan. There were no techniques to deal with it. It was incredibly hard for me to tell her these things. And the result is that I started dwelling on the trauma more and more over the next few months. I'm at a loss as to what the actual treatment for sexual trauma is. I'm hesitant to seek out another therapist. I would appreciate any guidance. Buddy... I feel you. I feel you. And as someone who is not a mental health professional, um, I don't know what the first step would be to suggest to you, but um, do not give up on finding another therapist. I like how now I go right into advice. But this is just from my experience. Um Finding a therapist who specializes in childhood sexual trauma, a lot of them might advertise that, but if you get a chance to interview them, ask them questions before you commit to therapy with them, ask them, have they done any intensive study around it? Have they worked 
with a particular organization like the Rape and Incest National Network, which is a great resource, R-A-I-N-N.org. And for men, oneinthree.org is a great resource because one in three men have experienced uh, uh, sexual trauma at some point in their in their life. Uh, I know EMDR can be helpful if there is um, compulsive sexual activity uh, as a byproduct of the abuse. Uh, the Meadows is a great facility. I know a lot of people find profound help there in unpacking the trauma and developing tools for dealing with the ripples, excuse me, <clears throat> of that trauma. So there are a lot of places uh, to begin at, but more than anything, I want to say that you are not alone and feel free to contact me. Um, I know of a online support group uh, exclusively for people who have experienced covert or overt uh, sexual abuse by their mother or another female caregiver. So feel free to email me that, Ted. Sending you some love, buddy. This is from the... <clears throat> I did a huge line of coke before I uh, hit record. This is from the uh, body shame survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Horse Girl, and she's in her 30s. What do you like or dislike about your body and why? She writes, I dislike my face. Sometimes I think I may have BDD, which I believe stands for body dysmorphia disorder, since I obsess about my face pretty much all day, every day. People have called me beautiful, unprompted on many occasions, but all I see are the imperfections. My jaw isn't symmetrical enough. My teeth aren't straight enough. My nose is too big. I have very dark circles under my eyes. My lips are too thin. My forehead's too big. My face is too long, and so on. It also doesn't help that everyone says, I look just like my mom. My mom was a very vain person in her youth, and was considered very beautiful, but has become quite unhealthy looking in her older age, and as a result of her untreated alcoholism and diabetes. She used to say I was her mini-me, and would badger me to change my appearance to look more like her. Wear her clothes, get my hair done like hers, wear colored contact lenses, so that we would have the same eye color. Wow. The level of control over my appearance as a child and teen was insane. We fought a lot about my appearance. If I stood my ground on what I wanted to wear or how I wanted to groom myself, she would say I looked like a man or that I looked horrible or looked like I got into a fight and had black eyes because of my dark circles. She would also compare me against my sisters and said my other sisters were prettier than me. I really didn't see the resemblance to my mom, but everyone else did. I felt uncomfortable about this, even horrified, because she has become so abusive and hurtful in her addiction that I really don't want any reminder of the abuse when I look in the mirror. Although my dad never weighed in on this with my mom, it did not help things when he called my mother ugly and disgusting during their fights. He would then say, I look just like my mom the next day, as if I wasn't supposed to to connect the two thoughts. My dad also objectified me and my sisters as soon as we were pre-teens. He told me I had the best body of the three of us, but was just average in the face department. You know, if there had to be a, a textbook created on how to fuck up your kids' relation to their self-image 
and their bodies. Your parents fucking wrote it. Wow. He said it one day out of nowhere and unprompted. I was horrified that he would share this out loud. To this day, he will send me photos of my younger, youngest sister, who is a model, without any message or contacts, context, but has never, ever shared photos of myself or my other sister. It's left me and my other sister feeling like we are the ugly ones or only have our looks to offer to the world. But then I also like my face, which is so, so confusing to me because I spend so much time criticizing how I look before flipping these thoughts around and thinking about how incredibly lucky I am to look this way. I even feel grateful to my parents for giving me their genes. Both my parents were very attractive when they were young, and objectively I know they created beautiful children, but emotionally I can't accept this idea about myself on a consistent basis. It's also a struggle to feel confident about my face because my positive feelings are so wrapped up in other people's opinions about how I look. As a teen, I was bullied a lot by my peers and even some mean-spirited teachers who would say I have the face of a dog or a horse. Good Lord. I had one asshole teacher who would neigh every time I came into class. He thought it was funny. It wasn't until my 20s that I grew into my features still. When people today say I look great, I just can't shake the feeling that they are deluded or wrong because of the comments and bullying from my childhood. Holy fuck. Holy fuck. And this is such a great example of we don't have to be molested or beat to have a number done on us when we were kids. And... First of all, I want to say I'm so sorry that you had to go through this. And I don't know if this will be comforting to you to share as someone who is a recovered alcoholic, recovering alcoholic, whatever you want to call it, but the mind of an addict and an alcoholic, especially untreated, it is driven by narcissism, fear, and delusion. And that, to a T, describes your mother. And you were the closest object for her to unleash her untreated alcoholism. It actually had nothing to do with you. It had to do with her her fear that she wasn't enough and what others would think. Thank you for sharing that and sending sending you a hug. This is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Bibu. And he writes, I'm sitting in a sento, in parentheses, public nude bath, on a rooftop in Osaka. It's the fourth night I've come to the bath, and I finally feel like I'm following the customs and having the experience properly. I'm sitting naked in 40 de- degrees Celsius, parentheses, 104 Fahrenheit. I'd like to know what it is, Kelvin. That's just me. I'm a science guy. Uh, Water up to my shoulders. It is late at night and the city thrums with anonymous life around me. I'm not sure what thrums means, but I appreciate the fanciness and I'm going to imagine it means uh, something like buzzes. At that moment, the clouds open up and it starts raining on me. It feels like an ancient and benevolent voice is saying, well done. 
I love that one. And he's only 18. Look at you all fancy at 18 in your hot tub in the rain in Osaka. I think I'm starting to get a little resentment against you. This is from the Back in Time survey filled out by uh, Polly Pocket. I believe we have a couple surveys from her. And uh, share a moment in your life you wish you could go back in time and say something to yourself. And uh, she writes, I was 17, and I'd say, just run away. There is nothing for you here. You can bring your boyfriend with you, but you have to leave now. Bring your drumsticks and your notebook and enough clothes for a week, and then literally just show up in New York and figure it out. I love that one. And then uh, finally, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Manic Buddy. And she writes on day six into helping my fiance fight his bipolar mania, I was so fucking annoyed with him and tired of being strong for the both of us. I I decided to try a new approach. I hung up my anxious distress for a night and said, fuck it, and started drinking with him. Parentheses, I really needed a drink. I pretended to get wasted and started matching his mood and odd behaviors. It started to work. He became concerned about my behavior, asking if I was okay. I'd say it was better than crying, and I got to be his manic buddy instead of his anxious and caring partner. Flash forward to now, 25 days later, and I am writing this awful moment on my new MacBook Air. Bought by you-know-who, as I listened to the loudest snoring ever induced by a lovely cocktail of mood stabilizers and antipsychotics, I really don't want to give this beauty back, but we have a wedding to pay for. My consciousness might be disintegrating. Heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. Or... With my Barbies. <laughs> the greatest source of our suffering. Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens. Is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions. Is very hard to heal and dark isolation. I developed compassion. It is in connection and community where that happens. The process was nearly unbearable. Like, I'm going to have to kill myself. We'll be right back after this. (laughs) I am here with Amelia Zachary, who is uh, an author, a mental health advocate. Um, There's a lot to your story. Your mother, your survivor of sexual assault, you moved to the American South. Uh, you're of Malaysian descent. That had to be exciting. Very exciting. All, all of it is, even the finding out my diagnosis and then living through it and now telling people about it and sharing the experience. It is amazing. I'm so grateful for you holding space for me today to share my thoughts and to move the needle, kind of have this be a part of these conversations that remove the stigma well we're not done yet i might turn on you you never know <laughs> this is not a safe space i like to take to take down my guests as soon as i can uh thank you for making the the trip from uh lexington kentucky uh let's start with your story of what it was like uh, growing up in kuala lumpur did i pronounce that correctly yes you did kuala lumpur 
Um, I was from a very, very tight-knit family. We are in everybody's business. Everybody knows what's going on with everybody else all the time. I'm told that in, in a, lot of, a lot of people who grow up in Asian uh, cultures, a culture, um, that that tends to be a thing and a lot of fear that uh, the neighbors are going to gossip or judge. Or- Absolutely, yes. Like, why, don't come home in the middle of the night because what are the neighbors going to think? think they are? So, yes, I grew up like that. And so there were a lot of rules, a lot of um, codes of conduct that we had to adhere to. For, for instance? For instance, no short skirts, no um, going out with boys, no going out at night. Girls mm-hmm. don't go out at night. And were you raised with any particular religion? I was raised with many religions. I was exposed to many religions. Um, but I think I found my way now. I am of a, I'm more spiritual than I am religious. I like that. I like that somebody talked about a Venn diagram where they intersect, but yeah. n- not to be conflated. Yeah. Um. So you weren't raised with any uh, particular... I was. I was raised Muslim. Mm. Uh, my my mother was Muslim. My father uh, my father was Hindu. And then when he got married to my mother, he had to convert. And so, w- was that an issue? Was that something he did begrudgingly or was he happy to no, do it? No, I think he was happy to do it. I think my parents were raising us in the sense where you have good values as long as we are ra- being raised to be good people, good human beings, treat each other kindly, and teach, they taught us how to be good. Talk about their relationship, uh, especially out- outwardly, and kind of the cues that, that you might have picked up about interpersonal relationships as a kid. They were very affectionate, very, very affectionate. My father would like, my father is a materialistic gesture kind of person. Mm-hmm. So he would give big... The love language. Yes, his love language was gifts. And so it was always gifts for something, gifts to celebrate any small little thing that you've achieved, he'd celebrate it. Um, my mother was more acts of service. And so she would do a lot of things for us. She would make sure that there was. she was a working mom. And so she would make sure there was food in the fridge for when we came home from school so that we would have a homemade meal. And we didn't have to eat out or have anyone else cook for us. Do you have a favorite uh, way of people expressing love to you? I think it's acts of, acts of service. I'm the same way. And, and yeah. And my husband does a beautiful job at it. That's nice. Yeah. Do you ever feel uncomfortable or unworthy or worried that, you know, you're causing someone too much fuss? All the time. Talk about that. All the time. I don't know. I think this is insecurity. Well, with my bipolar disorder um, diagnosis especially, I think I have a lot of needs. I need a lot of compassion, a lot of empathy and understanding from people around me, not just my husband and my children, but also my friends. Like my friend who's here today, Sarah, she's one of my best friends. And so she knows like when I'm in an episode, I need things. I need attention. I need a hand to hold me and they, they afford me that luxury of support. What are the ways that people can can show up for you when you're having an episode, whether it's mania or depression? I imagine mania is a lot different than yeah. when you're experiencing. I think managing expectations, right? Managing expectations in a way where 
when I say I, I can tell Sarah now, like I'm in an episode and I'm I'm very fast. I'm hypomanic right now, and I probably can't make it to the thing we planned tomorrow. Cannot. I cannot because I'm because I'm overstimulated. Cancer. <laughs> I would have to give an excuse because she understands, That's and beautiful. so she holds space for me, and and she's like, no problem, we'll cancel it. Like we'll do it some other time. Or sometimes I'm depressive and I call her and I say I need to talk and she's able to be there for me non-judgmentally and allow me space to be in my sadness or just be there for me to talk to her without telling me what to do, especially. Ah, it's so, it's so this nice. Is what, that's the worst thing to hear. Is this the is what worst. you should. This is what you should be doing. Take a walk, take a bath. And mm-hmm. that's not what I need. Yeah. So my friends have learned how to be the scaffolding for me so that if I fell, I wouldn't fall too far. How do you find the, um, and please don't anybody listening misinterpret this as me saying that, that people who are suffering are draining. But, you know, I think boundaries are a really important part of everybody's interpersonal dynamic. Um, And I have experienced people in the past who don't have boundaries, who don't understand when they have unrealistic expectations about how someone, um, I don't know, they call you up and they talk for two hours. and and, And it's not that they're, I don't mind that when someone's in crisis, but it's every time and it's yeah. the same thing and they don't, they're not seeking help. They just want an audience. Yeah, I, I think that happens and like that's a conversation to be had between people when you're not in crisis. That's a great point. I think when you're not in crisis, I created plans with the people around me. My my, I have very few, very close friends and my husband my mother-in-law is a great support, and my children. We have a, a plan for if I am in an episode, these are the things that might occur because I've been going through this for years. When did it start? Um, I was diagnosed 12 years ago, 13 years ago. Bipolar 1 or 2? Two? 2, yeah. Uh, that's that's a relief. I imagine <laughs> bipolar 1 is pretty... Not that I don't bipolar know, two I don't know if intense. that's a better bipolar to no? be had. I don't think so. You want to you want to upgrade? I don't or, think or so. Or is it a downgrade? I I don't think so. I I think it's all different, right? The yeah. experience is different. The struggles are different. There are challenges with all of them. Talk about the challenges of so of bipolar, especially when it first presented itself. Were you, you were a mom already? Not yet. Not yet. No. Okay. I was. Um, well, the challenges were first accepting that I had bipolar. I was drowned in the stigma where I believe that, oh, these people are crazy, they do crazy things, I'm not crazy. Like, crazy was the word. Like, I'm not that person. I'm different. Like, I, this could not be happening to me. And so it took a while for me to accept that, like, this was the diagnosis and there was, and then realizing that there was a way forward. Was it gradual or was there some type of moment of clarity? It was very gradual. Yeah. It was therapy. It was my husband's support. Like we were dating back then, and it was his support and understanding and more research and reading books that were written by people who have, who have experienced bipolar disorder and reading them and feeling less alone. Any particular one? 
Um, I love Susie Favor Hamilton's Fast Girl. I thought, like, when I read that, I thought, like, oh, but she was bipolar one. Right. But still, that experience of her mood swings and the um, risky behavior and Mm -hmm. promiscuity and all these things, that just made me feel like I wasn't alone. Like, oh, this is real. Yeah. This is probably real. Like, people are experiencing this. And this is why I also wrote to share my experience, hoping that other people who pick up the book will feel the same way. Uh, while I do not have a diagnosis of uh, bipolar, I have occasionally experienced hypomania um, and the beginning of taking certain meds. And the the struggle for me was I felt so alive. You know, I, I had never been more productive creatively, um, but I was engaging in promiscuous behavior. And, and somebody um, was consensual, but this person was like, I think you're experiencing mania. And it had never occurred to me that that might have been what it was. And looking back now, I feel shame's too strong of a word, but I cringe. Do you, are, are you able, as you look back at you know, promiscuity or maybe even just non-sexual um, intense activity. How, how do you, are there mixed feelings as you look well, back? I'm sure there are mixed feelings. It depends on when you're asking me. Like right this second, no. Right this second, because I'm in a space where I'm telling my story and I have told my story before and I, I mean many times before. And I kind of get desensitized to it, right? Because I'm talking about it so much. But when I do take time to myself, when I'm by myself and I think back to like my life and what, what's happened to it and then what's become of it, I understand, I accept that it's the illness. Mm-hmm. It's the behavior, behavior that came from the illness. They're symptoms. Those are all symptoms that when treated, I no longer experience. Right. So I guess the diagnosis helps you understand that come back, coming back to your earlier question, right? Once I got the diagnosis, it allowed me to put a label on it and mm-hmm. say, okay, this is something that I can handle. Mm-hmm. And these are the ways that I can handle it. What are the steps that I need to take, plans I need to make? And I did those things. And I think I'm in a much, much better place now than I was yeah, yeah. 13 years ago. What are some of the the ways outside of uh, prom- promiscuity um, when you're in that manic or hypomanic state that feel euphoric? So there was like the kind of hypomania that you're talking about. It's a fun time. That's the one that we like to have. So, people it's so people juicy. love having it, right? I am so creative. I can be so productive. I can do anything. And like my mind is going at 100 miles an hour, but I'm able to do things. Yeah, And you feel like this is the real me. Yes, this is the real me. I'm so powerful. I am invincible and I can Mm. do everything that I want to do. But hypomania also brings those kind of episodes where anxiety is really high, Mm -hmm. debilitating anxiety, or my mind is racing too much and I can't do anything those are the kind of and you don't get to choose which kind you get right? you <laughs> wouldn't just, it be nice if you wouldn't could wouldn't it be nice yeah I, w- I would choose the first type of mm-hmm. hypomania like that that is like the baseline yeah but yeah and I was I was uh, and sometimes I was spending a lot of money spending to no boy spe- do I relate to that spending to no concern of consequences 
And so that was one of the big ones. Like that was one of those big ones that my husband and I had trouble with. <laughs> I bet that's an understatement. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I didn't realize it at the at the time, but I experienced hypomania one time, and this was was when internet do, domain names were seventy dollars a pop, and I suddenly thought, "Oh, this is how I'm going to secure my financial future." This is this is like the the land rush in the west of the of the 1800s and i'm gonna buy every domain name that i i think might be valuable and i went thirty five thousand dollars in debt buying the most worthless domain names that you can imagine how long did that go on for uh a weekend a weekend a weekend and i was up almost all night just and and of course the you know the website that i was doing this through only allowed you to purchase one at a time, and I yeah. purchased four hundred. Oh wow! Yeah. Wow! Wow! <laughs> My friends, I, I haven't gotten time. that far. I haven't gotten that far. My worst one was thirty five hundred dollars from the hours of eleven thirty till four thirty in the morning. Yeah, I was I was spending it on psychics. <laughs> Tell me more because about that. I was so sure that like. I, I was so sure that I'm very spiritual. I believe in energies. I believe in all these things. And I thought like, oh, let's explore the world of psychics. Let's yeah. see what they have to say about my life and what my past life. So I speak to one and they tell me all these things. Your grandmother is talking to you and whatever. I'm like, oh, that's amazing. So that hour is up. And then I'm like, oh, I should call somebody else. And then I and then I speak to somebody else and I spoke to somebody else and I spoke to somebody else. And then... I bought tarot cards and I bought oracle cards and I bought crystals and I bought all these things. And by the end of it, it was $3,500. My husband woke up and he was like, did we get defrauded? Did you use your card on some site and now like someone's using our card? I'm like, no, it's all me. It's all me. <laughs> it's all and me. had you been diagnosed yet? Yes. Um, were your meds not working yes i think that was there was a transition when i was like trying so i've tried so many meds like i think if you could name me a med <laughs> i feel the same name, way i probably would have already tried it yeah and it's and that's the struggle with bipolar in my experience the str- struggle with my diagnosis was trying to find the right mix it's so much trial and error. we have to keep doing it you we have, have to. to and it requires well I will, don't let me put words in your mouth talk about the the experience of trying a new med and you know it's six weeks and it doesn't work yeah it's and they tell you wait wait it out like just it needs to get into your system this will work or meanwhile maybe take this to take care of the um, anxiety issues, take this to help with your sleep, take this to help with your depression. And like trying to find the right mix was incredibly arduous and painful. But when you do find it, it's something that I, I hold on to. I'm like, I'm never changing whatever I'm on because I've been in baseline for two, um, a year, a year and a half now. So just... After 13 years of treatment, I've been in baseline for one and a half years. But I also wanted to add, like, not just medication, it's also the therapist mm-hmm. that you work with. Like, getting the right therapist is also part of this struggle. 
Right. And, and for people who aren't familiar with it, uh, a therapist uh, and a psychiatrist are different and that's that an MD um, is required for somebody to prescribe meds for you, whereas a therapist is talk therapy or some other... A psychologist m- or a counselor or, or a social, social worker. worker, correct. Yeah. Um, and so talk about, did you have a psychiatrist or just an MD? Um, I've had both. Okay. I've tried different ones. Um, I've had so many experiences with um, finding the right therapist. I found one that was really wonderful. I was living in Japan at the time, and he was an American therapist um, living in Japan. And so he was amazing for as long as I was living there. And then I left, and I went to Canada, and I went and saw different um, doctors who were trying to diagnose me with other things on top of the bipolar. For instance? Uh, borderline personality disorder. That seems to happen or, a yeah. lot. Yes, because I think the symptoms overlap. Yeah, the mania and, and the... And they're both very difficult to diagnose. Yeah. But then, like, I kept looking for a doctor that I believed. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is... this. I feel it's important to me in my healing process to trust the person I'm working with, to trust that they have my best interest in mind, and that they are they are they cred, they are credible people who can give me right sound advice. Mm-hmm. And so I've I've met with a therapist who told me that I shouldn't have children because I'm a, I, because I have bipolar disorder. What that I wouldn't be able to manage, or that I might pass it down to my children. Um, I've met therapists who, within 15 minutes of talking to me, gave me I don't know. 15 different, I'm exaggerating, 15 different diagnoses. I've had therapies that I just didn't like. Mm-hmm. I didn't like the way they looked at me or smiled or their face was funny. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's so important that people know that your experience with a therapist is not a one-time thing. Like you can't just, it doesn't mean that every therapist is the same. Mm-hmm. So keep looking for a therapist that you like, that you you trust. And, and, and I don't know, but for me, it's kind of similar in to dating and that uh, I often discover what I need by coming across what I don't like. Yes. And realize I, I don't want And acknowledging that. it. Yeah. Yes. And that it's not necessarily, well, that modality isn't valid. It's just not what I like. It's not... What I need. I yes. had a therapist once who was into archetypes and analyzing my dreams, and that might work for some people, but yeah. I really found it to be a waste exactly. of time for me. And so I switched it's, therapists. It's so personal. This healing journey is so personal, and it has to fit right, yeah. just right for you, for it to be able to have a chance at working. Yeah. So you met your husband when you were uh, overseas. Was it Australia or Japan? Japan. Japan. Yeah. Um, talk about that. Oh, you have to. You have to give me more than that. Okay. Um, what was it about him that uh, attracted you, uh, especially emotionally? And you had not been diagnosed yet. No. Okay. Um, what What was it that that drew you? That drew me to him, his beautiful blue eyes mm-hmm. and his smile. Mm-hmm. I'm kidding. There's more than that. Like he was, he is the most patient person I've ever met in the planet. I think he's the only one that exists <laughs> that way. Um, he was very understanding, very open. Mm-hmm. He's very open to learning 
and understanding things about me, and that really was very flattering and also very attractive. Yeah. So when I was diagnosed, like he he was the one who helped me get diagnosed. He sat with me in my first therapy session, my first ever therapy session. He sat with me and held my hand, literally held my hand and got me through it. And I think it is a lot to do with his patience and his ability to listen and learn that kept us together, that has kept us together all these years. We've been together now for 13 years, married for 10. So I think it's going pretty good yeah, <laughs> so far. That's that, that. He sounds like a keeper. Yes. Um, you both um emigrated to or, or is he where's is he from australian or he's from, american american yeah um you then moved to kentucky we moved to canada for two years for his work mm-hmm. and then we moved to kentucky okay yeah uh talk about being a person of color um living in the american south and i and i want to preface this with you know th- th- I hope this doesn't come across to those of you that live in the South as a broad, broad stroke of, oh, you know, that's where prejudice begins when you cross the Mason-Dixon line. No, it's 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 everywhere. But um, I think people understand what I'm saying. I hope so, because I, I get hit with this a lot coming from Kentucky. I must say that Kentucky is my home and I love it and I love the people and the people love me back. And they have held me um, in their arms for the past 10 years. But if you want to talk about racism, microaggressions, they exist. As they exist in, Everywhere. The, re- in the rest of the, the United States, you can, you can find it anywhere, right? There's no mm-hmm. place that's safe from it. So, yes, I, I write a little bit about that in my, um, my book. I write a little bit about the microaggressions that I experienced. And it's hurtful and... It's a shame that it it's still happening. Talk about some of them. Mm, okay. And and let's plug the the name of your book uh, right now. It's called Enough: A Memoir of Mistakes, Mania, and uh, and Motherhood. And we'll plug it again be, before the uh, the. So I give a, I give a very simple one that like anybody, a lot of people of color have experience. I go into a shopping mall and I'm shopping. For I was shopping for beauty products and I picked up something to look at and this woman comes up to me and grabs it out of my hands and what are you looking for? And I'm like, well, I'm just looking for this moisturizer. We don't have anything for your skin. And I'm like, excuse me? And she just gives me this blank stare down. So that was my cue to leave. And so I left because in my position, I was an immigrant I was a person of color. I understood what was happening, but I didn't have a response because I felt powerless and insecure. I didn't feel like I would be able to stand up for myself and and also for fear of my children's safety. That's intense. Intense from a very simple gesture, right? There was a very small thing that she grabbed it out of my hand and stared me down and told me that there was nothing for me there. And... People need to realize that this is not the America that we all dream about. This is not why I came to this country. The picture of this country that I had in my mind was beautiful and how people stand up for each other, take Mm -hmm. care of each other and hold each other up. And so this happens. It's not unique to Kentucky. No. And so I was hoping to shed some light on that. 
There's a guy that lives three three doors down from me uh, who is very vocal about his dislike of certain ethnic types living in our neighborhood, and he's just the the meanest, uh, unfriendly. I, I didn't even know what the word is, but it's <laughs> it's sad. It's it is, sad. It is very sad. I've never seen him smile. You know, it is very sad for people to have those intense emotions about another human being yeah what were what were the if you can remember after that incident what was the next hour like in inside your body and your mind i left with my children sat in my car and cried and i called my mother-in-law you cried or they cried i cried yeah they didn't understand what was happening my children were i think five and three at the time so they didn't realize what had happened and so when I went in the car and I cried and I called my mother-in-law and I said, this just happened. And what else? I mean, what is there to be said except right. I'm so sorry that happened to you? And that as comforting it is, as it is intended, it wasn't comforting to receive because I would have much rather not have had that experience. Yeah. Um, this is going to sound unrelated, but I don't, but I don't think it is. I, I was watching... Uh, the Masters golf tournament um, a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things that an, an announcer said, he was talking about uh, a guy who was Asian. Um, I believe it was a caddy who was from Japan, and he said he's a credit to his people. And I just thought, you wouldn't say that about a white person. Why? Why are you saying that about him? It sounds so patronizing. Yes, and I think. Years ago, I wouldn't have even picked up on it, but uh, I think hearing people's stories, doing this podcast, and people sharing the little things that go under the radar, uh, I mean, the thing that you shared to me is above the, that's on the radar, that is is so clear, but um, talk about the, the ones, if you can think of any, that if somebody was standing right next to you, and was not of color that they might miss. If there are any you can think of, if 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 not, no big deal. I can't think of it right now because all the ones that I've had are very overt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've had the common go back home. You don't like it here, then go home. Yeah. And I'm you, like, this is my home. Yeah. Do you ever? Uh, think about what it would be like if you had had uh, if you were still a practicing Muslim wearing um, Muslim attire. I have not imagined that. No, I, I I'll do, imagine it for you. I do imagine. I mean, I've. I, we don't have to imagine this, right? We've seen it. We've seen yeah. it on the news. We've read the the articles and we've read experiences that people have gone through. I but I. Suppose that I would probably have the same treatment that would happen to me. I have friends who are in that experience, who have mm-hmm. experienced sad, horrible things. Yeah. So, yeah. Talk about the support that, that you've felt in Lexington and the, some moments of feeling welcomed and safe and supported, you know, um, even though um, you're... Um, not uh, from a culture that they were raised with. 
So I think people think about when they think about the South, racism comes to mind. I think people imply that whenever they ask me about living in Kentucky. But also the culture of the South is so open and friendly and welcoming. Yeah. They love people. They they'll they'll say they'll say bless your heart and mean something else. Mm-hmm. But but in general, I think they were very welcoming. It was very easy for me to meet people and mom when I had children. Mm-hmm. That was when like it was a struggle to be alone and a struggle with my um, bipolar. But I needed the support and I got it. It was very easy to meet other moms who were welcoming and who treated me just like one of their own. Um, in writing, I've been in this tight writing community. The the beautiful, active, and um, lively writing community in Lexington is beautiful, have welcomed me as a writer, and they honor me as a person of color, a writer of color, and that has been very encouraging. And it just makes it feel more like home. It must be a nice feeling. It's a very nice feeling. Yeah. And yes, so props to the South. Yes. I mean, one of the things that that I love about the South is a um, uh, a politeness and consideration that doesn't feel like, you know, when you've got a waiter who's sucking up to you, you know, it doesn't feel genuine, whereas... Um, sometimes in the South, you'll just come across somebody who asks how you're doing and they really do want to know yes. how you're doing. They'll actually stop. And, yes. And when you, and when I walk hi. into a, when, you know, when I'm walking into a store yeah. and I see somebody walking past, they'll actually stop and say, hi, how are you doing this morning? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I'm doing great. How are you doing? And like, he's, he's like, oh, it's a beautiful morning. And then you have this small little conversation and this random conversation that I think is very, it's very common yeah. where, I, where I live. And when you pass people on the sidewalk in the South, the majority of people will make eye contact with you and yes. smile. Whereas yes. in Los Angeles, the majority yes. of people avoid eye contact and no- it makes me so sad. I have noticed that. that, that, that I, was, I noticed that yesterday. So I've, I've been at the book festival the past two days. Don't take it personally. And person. I, I realized how the culture is different. Yeah. People are getting to where they're getting to. And then they're not looking left or right or like trying to make eye contact with yeah. anyone else. Now, I sometimes wonder, is it is it shame? Is it insecurity? Is it narcissism? Is it a combination of all of them? I or- think it's just not, it's, it's just culture, right? The culture yeah. of the community. Yeah. That people are here, people are just getting where they're getting to. They just want but, to get in their car and cut yeah. someone off. <laughs> Get about well, you day. have you do have terrible traffic, so they're probably rushing to get to where they're going to. Yeah, and uh, you need to be really careful of, with the gestures you make to people in Los Angeles because you could get shot. I mean, it doesn't happen often, but it happens often enough, and and uh, I think a lot more than it does in other other cities. And it's uh, when I first lived here, I flipped a guy off, and uh, the. There was just a vibe about this guy that was like, oh, this guy wants to shoot me. And I I don't know what it was. You know, you can sometimes pick up when somebody's annoyed with you or or like they're. You just didn't feel safe. Yeah. I think that would be a problem. If you flip someone in the South, I think that would still be a problem. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Not just in L.A. Yeah. Don't flip people with (laughs) gun gun racks. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about um, motherhood 
And uh, actually, before we do that, uh, talk about if you're comfortable when you were a student and experiencing uh, sexual assault. So I was sexually assaulted when I was 19 years old. And I lived in um, pain and trauma that I, I didn't even know. I didn't understand the concept of trauma. Um, I, so I just lived my life with maladaptive behaviors. And were you aware that this trauma was related to what had happened to you? Or did you think it was from I something else? I didn't even know it was trauma. For eight years, I lived my life, just lived my life the way I wanted to. I did things to try and take back the power. I dated the wrong kind of people. I was in an abusive relationship. I was just off the racks, like just not, not myself. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know. What were and the, then? Go ahead. And, and then eight years later, I was diagnosed with PTSD from sexual trauma, and that was the first time I ever heard the word rape assigned to my experience. And what did that feel like? It was a strange feeling to finally have somebody believe me and say that, and give it a name. Mm-hmm. And validate my experience, my my experience of the experience. I, I have heard people say that having their situation minimized or not believed afterwards can often feel worse than the experience itself, especially Absolutely. when it's a loved one. Absolutely. Talk, talk about that. So I had friends who ostracized me, who victim blaming, victim blaming, victim shaming was rampant. It was strong, and everybody I knew, the circles I was in, blamed me for what had happened. What were some of the things they said? Oh, they called me a whore, a slut, a cheap, uh, a cheap drink. Like all you needed to do was give me a drink, and you could sleep with me. Or they were they stopped talking to me. I couldn't be associated with someone who would do something like that. I was um, isolated. I was ostracized. And I was pariah overnight and because you, of something that happened. And I so I believe that I did something wrong. And you had expressed that that it was non-consensual. I did not. I was 19 years old. I was so green. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand what had happened. I got gotcha. you. I, I knew I knew I knew it happened, but I didn't understand that, like, I was supposed to give consent or that I. Right didn't give consent or I allowed this to happen to myself. I is It's my fault because I took the drink. I went out that night. I wore that dress. Even if there had been consent, what they were saying was super fucked up. Yes, absolutely. I think that that's, that's what I'm trying to say with my book, that we need to dismantle rape culture, rape culture that perpetuates sexual violence, that these things happen and people around me enforced it, validated his actions yeah, and blamed it on me. And victim blaming is the worst thing that could happen because then I'm second guessing my own, it, I go into a spiral it, of second guessing my own choices, my decisions in life or my sense of self, my sense of personhood was all taken away from me in one night. And I think people who've never experienced, um, being sexually violated, they don't understand that it's not, most of the time isn't spent thinking just about the event. It's the the, the ripples 
or I should say, it's not what we experience necessarily during the event. It's trying to get some type of perspective or truth about yes. it that will allow us to file it away, whether that's yes. healthy or not. But uh, talk about that. I was managing people around me rather than healing at all. I didn't even like I didn't even think about healing or that oh something bad has happened to me and so I need to treat this. I need to treat myself. I was busy telling people, trying to convince people that nothing happened. I see. I was trying to say, hey, like no nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing had happened. Like I I I didn't I didn't do anything. Like nothing happened. Because because I was afraid of I was afraid of the repercussions. I didn't want to be isolated. I didn't want to be ostracized. I didn't want to be that girl. And this was before people ostracized you or afterwards? This was while it was happening. Yeah. I, wa- I didn't want to be the pariah. I didn't want to be that girl. The girl who was who took a drink and then slept with a man. Because that wasn't what happened. I didn't want to sleep with a man. I didn't want that to happen. But it happened. I, I was unconscious. So that's... Oh, you were drugged. Yeah, I'm... That's the theory because right. I well one drink I, and unconscious I, yeah. I, that seems pretty so, logical. Yeah. So yeah, so then like I, I don't I don't make claims that I cannot certain give you with certainty that I knew. Well, I'll do that so. for you. <laughs> so, but I know I knew that I did not give consent. Yeah, I did not want that to happen. That was not something that I wanted to happen, but it happened. And then I spent the next month or so trying to convince everybody to accept me. And so I spent a lot of time trying to um, vie for attention, for validation, for love, for affection from these friends that I have recognized as my friends for all these, all the times before, instead of me actually working on myself and facing the trauma. Right. I did that for eight years. I was trying to get people to love me. I didn't believe that I was lovable. And when I when I started treatment, it was a long road. And I'll tell you that only 20 years later, 20 years after the assault, did I finally, it finally clicked in my mind that, hey, I was violated. That wasn't my choice. I did not want that and that happened to me and that's not okay. But it was a violation and it was not my fault. I finally came to a place where I could say it was not my fault. Was that gradual? Yes, over 20 years. But I think... So there wasn't one day where it was like... No, no. it it clicked for me when I was thinking about my daughters. I have two beautiful daughters. I call them my magnificent daughters. They're growing up and I felt like I was... And like every other parent, like we are trying to be honest with our children and not keep anything from them. We don't keep secrets in our family. And I'm raising them to be strong and independent and smart and all these things. But I felt like I was hiding. I was hiding this part of me from them. I was hiding the fact that I had bipolar. I was hiding the fact that I was sexually assaulted. And I didn't want to be that person who carried shame and guilt. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to model this to them. So that's when I decided that I was done with it. I was done with the shame and guilt. There's nothing to be shame and... It is not mine to carry. Right. 
that burden is not mine to carry. And so I was, I had decided that I was done with it because of my children. And did you, was the age they were at the time you told them a, a consideration and uh, whether or not you did it or the language you used to describe it? So my children were seven and five when I told them. And I think this is a difficult thing to talk about. But my children are cowering under tables at school at age five for lockdown drills. Yeah. How do you talk about that to children, right? Yeah. So I think children are more resilient than we think they are. And I think it's important for them to understand these things and for their own safety even, for them to understand that these things happen, bad things happen, and... I wanted to create a space where I was available to them should, God forbid, something like that mm-hmm. ever happen. That they would, that, and these are the conversations I'm talking about in my book. These are the conversations by my book. I mean, I want to move us away. Be, I want to be part of these conversations like today, be part of these conversations where we move away from the stigma and step into healing. Mm-hmm. allow a path to healing for people. And for me, disclosing this to my children was healing for me. Mommy's bipolar disorder, and this is what it looks like. Some days I have this, sometimes I'm in this, but if I am in any episode, I will tell you. Mm-hmm. And this is what you can do. And how did they receive that? Their children. They were very happy to receive it. Like, I can do something for mommy? Sure. Like, you know, because... Children are so innocent. They take they take whatever you give them. So hate, love, all these things they learn mm-hmm. from us. And I think explaining it to my children also allowed them to become empathetic people, to grow into empathetic people. And to see vulnerability models yes. and w- with with boundaries. Yes. You know. Yeah. That's that's beautiful. Thank you. So talk about <clears throat> other issues. You know, you mentioned kids having lockdown drills and they're five and seven. That's so fucked up. This you know, is, for active shooter situations, I imagine. Yes. This is America. This is the America we live in. I I would like not to comment further. Okay. But I just wanted to make it a point that we we do we force our children into difficult situations and conversations all the time. I mean, parents around America are talking to their children about what it means to have a lockdown drill to their five-year-olds in kindergarten. So I think talking about sexual assault and mental health is also okay. We can talk about these things with our children with the right language, with mm-hmm. the right right boundaries, like you said, for them to understand things and, and they grow from it. Do you, do you worry that it um, takes a part of them away you know that that kind of beautiful world at least when kids are raised in a safe environment of um of innocence um it must be heartbreaking to i know consider that it's going to chip away a little bit of that sense of safety they have walking out their front door but i suppose it's practical i think it's practical and also i think it's our job to love them through it because our children are going to go into the world and 
are going to be without me. They are without me eight hours a day. Right? They have yeah. to be away from me, and I cannot protect them all the time. So I have to trust that I've educated them enough. I have given them enough advice, information, and wisdom for them to carry on in life. But then again, like through the hard things, it's my job to create the safe space for them, to what, make them feel loved and safe. What's it like letting go of the things that you don't have control over, especially with with you know two young children? And I'm talking specifically about being a parent with... Um, you know, given the given the stuff that you've been through, where you're faced with the truth that the world can be chaotic and scary and unsafe, having two little kids out there that, in in many ways, you're powerless over things that happen to them when they walk out the front door. Do you find yourself ruminating about it? Are you able to? Is that where your spirituality comes in? What? I don't know if I've, you've asked, that's a very good question. I don't know if I've let go. <laughs> what does that look like? I, I don't know. I think I trust in, I cannot say that I let go and like, oh, I trust in like, oh, things are going to be okay. Like, they're fine. But I think I do the best I can. Like any other parent, you understand the situations that they are going into as best as you can and, and and do whatever it takes to ensure that it's as safe as possible. And then you have to just not think about ruminate over mm-hmm. what could happen or what possibly could happen because then mm-hmm. they, your children will never have a life. What are some of your favorite activities to do with your kids? We love hiking. Yeah, talk about so. that. We love hiking. We everywhere we go, we travel. So we did the whole. We live in Kentucky, and we took a trip over to um, all the way to Nevada, and then turned around, went up north, turned around, and came back to Kentucky. So we did the whole round. I think we hit sixteen states, and every state that we went to, we went on a hike. Mm-hmm. Like we went, we went on a hike and looked for a swimming hole. And there's this beautiful thing that happens in nature with children. They just melt into it. They absorb every part of nature and they enjoy it and they're happy and they're free. And I see them running around freely, although I'm cringing for snakes or (laughs) whatever might be lurking around the corner. But I believe that nature heals. And that's part of my healing too. I believe being one in nature, just being part of this vast universe Mm -hmm. that I am a small speck that means something to this whole picture. The picture of the world would not be complete if I was not there in this space and time. So I, I love nature and hiking and spending time outdoors. Were there any particular uh, hiking trails or parks that you would recommend uh, people try? So this is a special one. Um, my best friends and I, yeah, in the book, I, I tell this story, but I don't think I tell it in de- too much detail about our hike. But the three of us went on a hike in Sedona, Arizona. I think it was called the Chuck Wagon Trail. We thought we were getting back to the car, but we kept on walking 10 miles 
before oh, we found no. <laughs> before we found our way. There was no cell service, and we didn't know was where Sarah we were with going. you. Yes, yeah, Sarah. She's, and then we she's had she's behind we had, you, nodding her head and laughing. <laughs> we had one bottle of water and a packet of pistachios. That's all we had, and we were walking ten miles till we finally found a road that we could find where the the parking lot was. But there was amazing experience of us being lost but not feeling lost, just feeling at home. I think it was something about, I think it's something about our energies. Together, the three of us were like mm-hmm. a vortex, and we were in nature, and it was beautiful. And so like that, I would definitely recommend that trail. With a map. With <laughs> I mean, it, in, in so many ways, and I hope this doesn't sound cheesy, but it's such an analogy for life and trying to find our map. For me, it was spirituality, community, and getting professional help. Yeah. Uh, that became my map. Um, and it, it's, um, I don't know where I was going with with this, but I, I, I guess the idea of being lost and there can also be be beauty um if the way, if the way that we're handling it internally yeah. um whether we bring the right tools to it or have the right attitude towards it you know rather than being angry when you yes. discovered you went the wrong way or were you well, angry when so- you discovered no, we were not. We were laughing the whole time. We were like, we have no idea where we're going. We don't know how the F we're going to get out of this. We are lost. And Sarah's like, no, we're not. Did anybody no, bring we- up 127 hours <laughs> in the movie? Yeah, Sarah's nodding her head, yes. Sarah was like, no, no, we're not. We're not lost. We know where we're going. We're like, okay, let's just go where Sarah goes. Well, we have a saying, the three of us, we say there are no wrong cards. Because we were on that trip in Sedona, we were doing tarot cards, tarot reading, and this lady was kept, cards kept popping out of her deck, not intentionally. So we kept picking it up to give it back to her, and she's like, no, popped out, it's yours. It's your card, that's your reading. And we were like, oh, dude, there are no no wrong cards. And isn't that what life is? There are no wrong cards. You dealt what you dealt. There's no good, there's no bad, it just is. And that's kind of how I made peace with my past. And I made peace with the frustration of this diagnosis of bipolar. There are no wrong cards. It is what it is. And so let's make the best of it. I, and I think one of the things that uh, can be most important is to try to find meaning in the hand that we're, that yeah. we're dealt. Yes. To experience it, to be in the moment and experience it as it is. Not as what you think it should be or what it was, like just be in the moment of now, here and now. Well, I really enjoyed talking to you. Your your book is called Enough, A Memoir of Mistakes, Mania, and uh, Motherhood. And where can people find out more about you? Um, You can find out more and connect with me on ameliazachry.com. That's Amelia, A-M-E-L-I-A-Z-A-C-H-R-Y.com. Um, or I'm on Facebook and Instagram at Brown Girl Crazy World. <laughs> That's fantastic. And my books are available everywhere books are sold. But And I, I, I would like to ask if you do read it, leave me a review on Goodreads or Amazon. That helps authors like me. Awesome. Thank you so much, Amelia. Thank you. I never get tired of hearing a story of a parent 
fighting to grow, to be a better person, to be a better spouse, to be a better friend, but most importantly, to be a better a better parent. Just, just love it. Let's jump into some surveys. This is from the Shame and Secret survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Lonely Girl. She identifies as straight. She's in her 30s. She says that she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, I fell asleep in church when I was about four, and when I woke up, a kid who was a few years older than me was fondling me under my dress. His fingers were under my underwear, and I wanted him to stop, but I was frozen and didn't say anything. Uh, I would say that is absolutely uh, uh, sexual abuse, and it doesn't matter that that kid might have not understood what he was doing was wrong or the repercussions of it. That's the important part about healing is it, we have to put aside, at least for part of the healing process, the court case of whether what was done to us was illegal or the person knew it was wrong. We got to process that feeling of, I felt you know, like an object or I didn't feel safe or whatever those feelings might be. Uh, she's been emotionally abused. She writes, I was emotionally neglected while growing up and also left alone pretty often. I'm now understanding how this has affected me as an adult. I'm unable to have close relationships or let people too close to me. I'm, I don't know why I said that, that to people too close to me. I'm currently 40 and just started dating. I met a guy who was wonderful, but I am not able to allow myself to be close to him, and it breaks my heart. I unintentionally move away from him often when he tries to touch me. I enjoy cuddling and hugs, but have not made it too far past that. I hate being so detached. I just want to be in love and normal. Uh, any positive experiences with abusers? I know my parents love me, but I also understand that they have undiagnosed illnesses. I'm pretty certain my dad is a narcissist, and my mom has borderline personality disorder. I have a relationship with them and feel like I have healthy boundaries with them, but of course it makes me sad. Darkest thoughts. Lately, I've been feeling incredibly broken. I know that the way I feel is only because of my childhood, but in my head, I feel like I'm just very fucked up and I will never be normal. I will never be able to let someone love me or be intimate with someone. I want to change this, but can't. Some part of me knows that my guy will leave eventually. I think I will grow old alone and it breaks my heart. Darkest secrets. I sometimes wish I would have called the police on my dad when he attacked my mom when I was little. I wonder if it would have changed anything for me. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I used to fantasize about making love to someone I was deeply in love with. I also used to fantasize about making love to a woman. Writing this, I'm not sure how I feel about it. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell the guy I'm dating that he's probably wasting his time with me. I honestly don't know if I'm capable of getting better. I'm scared to say it because it will make it real, but I know it's the honest thing to do. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to have normal romantic relationships and friendships. I also wish to love my job again. Have you shared these things with others? The guy I'm dating knows I'm battling with stuff and that I'm in therapy. He's supportive. He doesn't know everything I've shared, but soon I will tell him. 
How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel pretty sad and empty. I want to trust the process of therapy, but I feel like I'm too late. I am always hopeful, though. It might be, uh, first of all, thank you for sharing all that, and I'm sorry that you experienced that. And I don't know if there is a normal. You mentioned normal a couple of times. I feel like it's a healthy thing to put the idea of normal away and use the word healed or healthy. Because um, what I think is, is I like to think of it in terms of um, healing wounds rather than becoming normal. Because then we start comparing ourselves to other people. And I think that's a real rabbit hole to, to go down. And uh, it might be worth a shot in addition to therapy, checking out support groups. Um, but what, what, you know what I would also recommend is reading Facing Love Addiction by Pia Melody. And I know on the surface that sounds like love addiction. No, she has trouble getting close to this. It's all a part of the same disease, which is an intimacy disorder or wound or whatever you want to call it. And there's this dance that they talk about where we pursue people who are unavailable and then when they come close to us, we push them away. And it's this way of us trying to maintain a distance that feels safe to us. And I don't know if that's the case with you, but it feels like it might be. So um, probably wouldn't hurt to read Facing Love Addiction. And I, and I imagine, uh, I believe she suggests some uh, support groups in there that you might check out. But thank you for your survey. Uh, we have a listener who filled out some great loves, and I'm going to break them up throughout the uh, the rest of the surveys. Um, actually, I don't know if it's a if it's a she. They call themselves uh, themselves. They call themselves Hot Leaf Juice. I don't know what that means. Is that tea? Is that something sexy in the forest? Uh, they write, "I love my morning routine." It's weird to say as someone who is decidedly not a morning person, but I've really gotten my morning routine together this school year. I teach culinary classes at a high school, which can be so chaotic, but there's a moment in the morning when I'm alone in my quiet classroom, and I can smell the coffee I just started brewing, and everything is set up for the recipe we're about to work through, and I just feel so calm and ready for the day ahead. My anxiety is at bay, and my confidence it's a healthy boost when I just soak in the work I've done to set myself up for success that day. Oh man, do I love that one. And I love the smell of coffee brewing in school. It always reminds me of the principal's office, which was not a bad place for me. I was, uh, I wouldn't say a goody two shoes, but um, I don't know. Sometimes I was just in there hanging out, talking, talking to the, our principal was a, a a nun named Sister Nancy, and she was fucking great. She was such a kind-hearted person, and um, I just always remember feeling like loved and seen when when I was when I was in there. I mean, there were some nuns who were nightmares, and the pastor of our parish was oh fuck. He he once pulled me up off my feet by the nape of my neck. The, little, the hair on the back of my neck, which I think is in the Bible. It's got a picture of a haircut, and then like, 
IKEA instructions on how to get the, the kid off his feet. Um, but thank you for those loves. Those are awesome. This is from the I Shouldn't Feel This Way survey filled out by, it's just a face emoji, so I uh, can't give it a name. Uh, she's a woman in her 20s who was raised in a co- totally chaotic environment. Uh, how would you like people to think of you as a kind and healed soul, a good person? How does it feel writing that? Impossible. It feels so impossible to believe I could be anything more than a struggling, inattentive, <laughs> troublemaking gremlin. Oh, I love you. I love you and that sentence and the mean voice in your head that is a part of the big club that we all belong to. How would you use a time machine? I would take better care to say nice things to the people I considered my friend circle in middle and high school. So many of us struggled, myself included. And maybe some nicer words from me would have been good for all of our souls instead of the depressive negativity I so often displayed. I'm supposed to feel secure and safe about my healthy relationship, but I don't. I feel scared he'll leave me almost constantly. I feel like he will get tired of me. I feel like I love him with all my heart and cannot bear the thought of losing him, yet the thoughts frequent my mind so much. I'm sorry that you're experiencing that, but what you said, I think, is such an important issue to voice, and my take on that feeling when we're afraid that somebody is going to leave is that when love feels possessive, something else is going on, and maybe that's obvious, but... The, the depth of love, I think, is or what feels like love, is related or might even be expressed by the depth of our need to feel validated and sometimes even distracted from our fear of facing what's actually going on with us underneath the relationship, the job, all that other stuff, that intensity. You know, there's a saying in one of my support groups is that, you know, before we roll in there, we mistook intensity for intimacy. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Somewhat abnormal. It's overwhelming. Why do I use the word abnormal there? Well, I guess because I want to get in their frame of mind. I hope it doesn't come across that I'm basically doing what I just asked that other person to not uh, use the word normal. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? Probably not. I know some folks do, but again, it's hard to reconcile logic with feelings for me. Why isn't that the, the struggle to connect the intellectual to the emotional? It's so hard. It's so hard. But it's doable. I really believe it's doable. Uh, And then this is another love from uh, our friend Leaf Juice. And they write, I love my drive to work. Most mornings it's rainy and gray, but for a few weeks in the fall and a few weeks in the spring, the sun rises right beside the nearby mountains and lights up the whole sky in gold. 
My commute is short, but takes me on a winding road past rolling fields with a view of the mountain the whole time. I feel so grateful on those mornings because I know this will only last a few more days and I was lucky enough to be going to work at just the right time to see the sun rise in its full glory. It reminds my anxious mind of how beautiful it can be to live in the moment. Love it. Love it. If I had a cigar, I would ash it right as I said it, just to punctuate it. Just to let you know how committed I am to that thought. And if I had a stovepipe hat, I would tip it. I would tip it towards the concierge. I don't know why I'm all of a sudden in a hotel lobby. Well, that's, that's where I like to hang out. This is from the Fear Survey. Oh, and this is from our friend uh, Sulky Colt again. Uh, I fear that I can't trust myself to make good decisions and be good to friends. I fear that my parents, never acting like they trusted me, and maybe my not trusting them, and my surprising naivete slash timidity means people won't ever feel they can trust me. People seem to assume I'm going to fuck them over or that I'm incapable. Am I projecting? Or are they projecting onto me? Or is there something about me that really is bad? I wish I could act as confident as others seem. You know, if somebody hasn't come out and told you, I don't trust you, put the, put the crystal ball away and accept that they do. You know, our friend picker, our partner picker, for a lot of us, if we grew up in unstable environments, it's fucked. It's wobbly. And sometimes I, I, and this is not a unique thought, but we need to be the friend that we want or we need to be the partner that we want because then I believe we will attract a different type of person. My personal belief. you know. So I would say start being the friend that you want to be and see if you feel any reciprocation from those friendships. Uh, vulnerability, trust, and intimacy takes practice. It, it is not a switch that we turn on or off. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by alcohol-free Gigi. And about her codependency, she writes, I'm afraid to tell my alcoholic husband I recently quit drinking because I don't want to upset him. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, for people who don't understand codependency or alcoholism, I think they probably go, well, that's ridiculous. But those of us who do experience one or both are like, oh, boy, do I get that. I had a therapist tell me one time that the dynamic of an alcoholic household or a relationship with an alcoholic is like those things that... Uh, hang above baby cribs the i think they're called a mobile where it's kind of got this balance uh you know there's a little string hanging down and it's this whole thing made out of paper or whatever and when you take one piece out of the mobile it upsets the entire balance of everything and the therapist said that's what happens when one person gets sober because everybody else then has to go oh 
there, this isn't the play we've rehearsed a thousand times. How do I react now? So they usually want to blame the person who changed the script. Even if that person is changing the script to save their life or their sanity. But kudos on you, and I, I hope you, uh, I hope you take care of yourself, whatever, whatever you wind up doing. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Scientits. God bless you. She's in her 30s, identifies as bisexual, says that she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She does not uh, elaborate. She's been physically and emotionally abused. I was parentified at a young age. Uh, covert incest was such an eye-opening term when I heard it on this program. That book, Silently Seduced, really hit home, even though it wasn't exactly accurate to my situation. Any positive experiences with abusers? I have the most complicated feelings about my mom. There are a lot of positive memories from growing up, and for a while, she was truly a close friend. Um, boy, that, that phrase is always a red flag to me when somebody th thinks of their or uses the word friend to describe uh, a parent. Uh, she just still has no adult friends. I saw a meme about uh, and quote, emotional support oldest daughter, unquote, and that describes me to a T. I want so hard to have the relationship I thought we had when I was younger, but I'm currently trying to mourn the loss of that idea so I can more easily accept things as they are. Darkest thoughts. I'm always thinking about dying. I'm not afraid anymore. It will be a sweet release. And in parentheses, I am not suicidal. Ideation is just suggestions from a dumb brain. I think a lot about dropping everything in my life and starting over. I always have one foot out the door of every relationship and undertaking. Darkest secrets. I used to hit my siblings when I was very young. I think it stopped when I went to kindergarten and was able to bully boys on the playground. I think some of the darkest things I've done were cheating slash manipulating others to cheat. The thrill of the hunt and of making people compromise themselves for me. It was intoxicating. Oh, also there have been multiple times I've hit another car, no damage, and fled the scene uh, because there was no damage. Um, sexual fantasies most powerful to you, fucking myself. Not masturbation, but having sex with an exact replica of myself. The idea gets me every time. I sometimes wonder if my attraction to other women is actually rooted in their similarity, similarities to myself physically. It feels good and empowering to share that, though it's contradictory to my body shame survey. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I tell my mother that in order for me to have the close relationship with her that she wants, she needs to have some accountability for her actions during my childhood and also in my adulthood. She needs to admit the lies and, and this is in caps, stop lying. She lied to me about going to therapy for months. I thought finally we could connect, but she's just glib and good at pretending. Boy, that's, that sounds like a hard nut to crack. It sounds like there are a lot of uh, issues. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish 
to be able to actually rest. I wish to stop worrying about making a living so I can just live. I wish that finishing my PhD will go quickly. I wish for my parents and sister to find stable housing, stability, and health. I wish capitalism would fall already. Uh, have you shared these things with others? Some things uh, went okay because I only shared with people who would understand. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel the same. Sen oh, any comments to make the podcast better? I listened to podcasts sped up, and for the longest time I thought you were saying shaman secrets, phonetic phonetically like shaman, the, uh, um, I don't know, what would you call that? The healer. Uh, yeah, a lot of people think that, but uh, thank you for your, for your survey. And, um, it, it is painful when we have to admit that, uh, we are dealing with a brick wall that, that we want to be uh, flexible, especially when it's a parent or a loved one. Another love from uh, Leaf Juice. I love baking and cooking. I love that you can transform the same simple ingredients into such a wide variety of dishes, dishes, and at the end of the work, there's something delicious to share. I love the moment someone closes their eyes after they taste something great to just soak in the pure sensations, especially if it comes from something I've made. I am digging your loves. Leaf juice. This is from a struggle in a sentence filled out by Polly Pocket and uh, about... For ADD, she writes, climbing, 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 but no summit. About her alcoholism and drug addiction. I'm both frustrated parent and unbelievably unruly toddler. Shut the fuck up and stop it. About her sex addiction. That children's book, Are You My Mother? About her PTSD. Everyone is always lying. There is always someone in the bushes with a gun and a scope. Snapshot from uh, her life about her PTSD. I leave class to sob in a bathroom stall, return and want to punch the professor. I glare at him for 40 minutes. Walk to my car, look over my shoulder several times to see if anyone's following. Get home, check every closet. Can't sleep because someone might break in and rape me. Look through everything I own for cameras. My boyfriend tells me he loves me and I scold him for lying to me. My therapist says that's terrible when I tell her I was molested. I'm surprised that it helps that she says that. I sob, writhing on my confused boyfriend's floor at random times. Wow, that is a lot. I'm sorry that you are in so much pain. Fuck. Sometimes I, I you know, when... When I read a survey that just feels so dire and that someone's in, in such crisis, there's a part of me that's like, do you really want to read this and, and bum the listeners out? But I, I feel an obligation because I know that there are people that feel exactly like that survey does. And I, and I feel like 
Those are the exact surveys that I, that I should be reading. Got another love from Leaf Juice. They write, I love living in the Northwest, the tiny dewdrops that cling to everything around me, the way seasons burst out onto the scene, streaks of orange around the evergreens, cherry blossoms all opening at once, bluebirds summer days after weeks of gray, before they give way to another few weeks of rain, and yes, I even love the rainy months and the howling wind that blows my garbage cans down the street. What an image. You can't beat a nice garbage can rolling down the street, can you? Or when it floods and you just, you're just watching people's garbage cans float by. I like to pretend that I'm in Venice. I speak Italian, pretending it's a gondolier. And then finally, we got a, an awful moment. Uh, and we read this one, I think, years ago, filled out by a woman who calls herself Nopra. And she writes, my sophomore year of high school, I had to take the bus part of the time because I wouldn't receive my license until July and none of my other friends could drive yet. I didn't love it because I'd get nauseous easily and Millie, the bus driver, liked to take corners like it was the Indy 500. My grandparents were in town and I was helping her dry the dishes as she was washing them. She was asking me about school and I was filling her in. You know, the usual grandchild updates, uh, the grandparent talk. There's a slight pause, and then out of nowhere, she blindsides me with, do you see much oral sex on the bus? I just looked at her, and I was like, hold on, what do you mean? Her response was, I hear it's a common occurrence, especially in the seats at the way back. At this point, I'm dying of embarrassment, and she continues, well, I hear they also have this thing where the guys line up by the girl like it's a choo-choo train. And at this point, I call in my grandpa and dad for support. My dad was like, Mom, where did you even hear about this? And my grandma said, I was watching Oprah. God bless Oprah, though, man. For those of you that aren't old enough to understand the impact that she has had on our society. She was the first person to provide, in my opinion, a real public forum to talk about the untalkable things like incest and surviving sexual abuse and all the other stuff that had just laid secret and still does a lot of a lot of places, but thank you for that survey. Uh, what do I got to share wrapping it up? You, you, you already know you're not alone. You don't need me to say that, or maybe that's part of the ceremony now. I just got to keep that, got to keep that up, even though you know you're not alone. I'm going to get on my soapbox, tell you if you're struggling and you're feeling stuck, helps out there. All you got to do is find your tribe. And yeah, it's scary as fuck, but it's worth it. And uh, never forget you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely